For the longer you remain like a mad professor mm-hmm. in a white jacket in theory land, the, more, the greater the chance of you failing. The sooner you can get your software, however rough and ready, mm-hmm. into the hands of people that are using it, the better chance you have of success because you can just iterate really fast. And that's true. Anyone listening to this who's done that knows how quickly, and you will, how quickly does your software iterate once it's in the hands of a customer. Mm -hmm. Also, once it's in the hands of a customer, the whole company lifts up. My shit's been used. People are using, you know, and it makes it real. A hundred percent. And as you said, it's, uh, and we do this weekly on the uh, end of week calls. We have, you know, a real celebration of customer success. and And that in terms of, giving everyone that inspiration, keeping everyone believing when it's when people come up to you at an event and say, oh, you know, you might not know who we are, but we used your software and we had this outcome. It, it's all about that, exactly. Why is there such prevalence of addiction within the entrepreneurial community? And what is your view on it? Well, we're all crazy. <laughs> right? Certainly uh, helps. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because... If you're going to start a business, as you, as, you, as you said, I mean, you're signing up to, yeah, there's going to be lots of amazing highs, but there's going to be, you know, a lot of lows mm. and a lot of soul searching and, a, you know, a lot of pressure put on your partner, your family or whatever, because it's, a, it's an all-consuming thing, mm. isn't it? And anyone that says there's work-life balance in an early-stage software company, I would question that. I just I think it's bollocks. Yeah. I, I just don't think it's true. Um, and I think the problem is, in my case, I'd spent 20 years building these businesses, uh, th- three businesses in total. Um, so it wasn't one I sold for 800 million, it was one I sold for 600 million, one 100 and whatever. So that's one of the things I'm proud of is you can get lucky once. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You can't get lucky three times. Yes, absolutely. Um, and suddenly I stopped. I got divorced. I had a big pile of cash. Um, and suddenly, what do I do all the time? You know, I rang lots of friends. Let's go and play golf, go for a walk, fancy doing a bit of cooking. Then we're all working, mm. right? Um, and so I you know, suddenly found, you find you're mixing with tons of people who really aren't your friends. Mm-hmm. We've all watched the movie. And then, you know, you know you're, you're trying to re- get the same highs mm-hmm. that you got from that, all of those, all of the rough and tumble that goes with early stage software companies. In another way. Yes. And unfortunately, it's a very unhealthy way. I'm proudest of um, when I got clean, the impact that that's had on my children, my family, and uh, and generally my ecosystem and, and, and those who come into contact with me every day, every week, every month. And my son almost died four years ago. He was 11 years old and weighed 27 kilograms. He had an, eat- so it's an eating disorder. So, you know went down from 45 to 27 kilos. He was emaciated and close to the end. Um, So so that's one of the reasons I got clean. And, um, you know, him and his his older brother, Ollie, um, uh, was was almost as ill, but angry. And little by little, they've got better. uh, They've got more confident, more smiles. And just, you can see their self-esteem grow. And it's amazing. To watch and and it suddenly brought home to me quite how important you know parents are with kids because you you know you think they'll muddle by they'll make the most of everything but you have a massive impact impact on their on on what happens to them and I, I hadn't appreciated that before but then sort of like I was working and things are going well my career is going well and it and, and it still is um, I always was like 
there's something else I want to do outside. I don't know why, but I kind of want to do it. Um, which bred into different sort of like brands that I'd always considered. Um, and it's so funny with Millennial Money, which is a company that I'm, I'm scaling now with, with one of my best friends. Um, it's so weird because it was conversations that me and friends were having uh, about money and life and like whether the social contract that we've been mm. sold is broken. And it was just like loads of loose conversations. I remember walking to work one day and just called my mate and I was like, I've got this idea, like it, it could be nothing, but I've just got this weird idea. And it's so fun. I was walking to work and I called him and he picked up. Fair play to him because most people would be like, oh, just shut up. <laughs> and I was like, I think we should like try and do something. So if you imagine your mate calling you and being like, actually, you, you, you'd probably go for it because you're amazing. No, I, don't, I, pick up the, I pick up the phone to like three people and that's been scheduled. So. <laughs> Listen, I've got this idea, like, let's just, and we didn't have a lot of money at the time. Yeah. Like, we're still in this rat How rail. old are you guys at this stage? 24, Five. 25. Maybe slightly. I've lost track before. Pre, it's pre-pandemic, pre so like, yeah. like uh, a couple of years, pre, um, like a year maybe pre-pandemic. Um, I was like, we don't have a lot of savings at the moment because we just spend it all on going out. Sure. Um, but I've got this idea. Let's just put whatever money we have together and design a brand. Mm -hmm. This is what I think it's going to do. He was like, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that delusion. Love that. And that delusion, I think you kind of need as an entrepreneur yes. as well at the early stage. Absolutely. Um, and because I had my mate who was like, yeah, let's do it and jump in with me. I think that's when it started to unravel and the excitement builds at the start. Yeah. Um, and then when we launched, um, and it was very actually like considered launch, even though it felt like we're just doing something by chance mm -hmm. um, and started to gain a bit of traction. I was like, hold on, there's this whole other world out there where you can create something and create value um, based off an idea that you've had. Mm. It's not just like the value that someone ascribes to me because of the work that I do for them. Sure. I can actually create value seemingly out of nothing yeah. and eventually make money from it. But also for some people, they don't necessarily just want to earn more money. Yeah. Like it's different things that they can dive into. So I think there's an optimism founded on some more reality, which is coming out of the transparency mm. made available by social media. Does that That's make right. sense? Because it's, it's democratized first of all, information, but it's also given access to people's experiences. So the fact that I have a friend from university who's managed to build a business and exit and build another business, right? And I'm sitting in front of you. I know that's within the realms of possibility, mm, right? Yeah, you've got to um, see it to believe it, right? hundred percent. Yeah, and I think it's why it's so important as well, like having that diversity in terms of people's backgrounds, people's education, nationality, all those things, 100%. because it's so important that people need to see it to believe it. I, so we didn't appreciate that as much. Uh, so Shaq and I, we often get messages saying, wow, like two non-white mm -hmm. um, guys who are doing this. This is, um, We almost forget because we're like, yeah. oh, oh, wait, actually, because money's always been dominated by old white males. Right, and that's part of why people felt really disillusioned. Yeah, and most of our followers are actually women. Mm. Again, because it's wow. democratized. Because it's again, they're another like demographic that have historically been disenfranchised from money, or the conversation of money. Yeah. So we hadn't really appreciated representation, transparency, and access because uh, they're almost they feel collateral, but they're actually yeah. really important points that come into it and empower people without you knowing it. Yeah, it's so important and literally it, you need to see it to believe it because otherwise it's 
something that, and, and again, it goes back to representation and, and there's a lot of people for one reason or another who get upset about a drive of better yeah, representation. Yeah. Yeah. But because like it's a, I think it's just a human thing that yeah. I need to be able to imagine what that looks like for me. Yeah. And if you listen to like sports people, when they talk about visualization, mm -hmm. they need to visualize themselves scoring that penalty. So giving people the tools to imagine that's within the realms of their possibility yeah. is so important and definitely, I'm sure a huge, reason as to why people have responded so well to you guys. And then for the resourceful mm -hmm. um, amongst, especially like Gen Z, right? Um, you just, have, you have your phone, everyone has a phone now yeah. and you see how like viral people are going mm -hmm. and you don't have to go viral. That's not, I, I use that term loosely. you don't have to go viral, but people are able to just pick up their phone, mm. tell stories and build a brand around it. Um, and that is a quite a new concept. Yeah. So I remember when people first, like people we knew first started to like get into social media and you just thought, oh, it's a bit self-serving, mm. like, it's a bit weird, it's a bit, and then you realize that actually, no, like there's real businesses being built out of it. Yeah. Um, and it's not just a vanity thing anymore. Someone creating content is the same as someone else going to the gym yeah. in that some people might go to the gym just to look good, yeah. but most people do it to feel good. Yeah. Most people do it to, to achieve something outside. Yeah. And I think it's just part of the, you know, it's another string to the bow that people have. We went for a pitch uh, to Deliveroo with, the, with the, the agency CEO at the time. And did you guys know much about Deliveroo? Where, where were they in I that I think journey? he did, I didn't. Okay. I, was just, I, I, I came here as the, as the you know, technical lead and we're yeah. like, yeah, I'm gonna try and help like in the discussion to like try and pitch Deliveroo, yeah. which was not small, but still on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis, like not everywhere in London. So what year was this? When, when was this? It remember? was 2017. Okay, fine. 2017, fine. yeah. Yeah. So it was already Series B, I think, for mm -hmm. Deliveroo, but like probably less than 150 employees. Okay. Just in London and maybe five cities in the UK and just launched Paris. That was it. Interesting. Because so, I remember discovering Deliveroo in 2015 yeah. when I started to rapidly gain weight, interestingly. Okay. just happened to be at the same time. Okay. Don't know okay. if the two were related. I was, <laughs> I was living in shortage maybe, at the time, but maybe. it potentially ruined my life. But, oh, you know, good marketing at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so it wasn't, uh, uh, you know, in, in, it, it wasn't the beginning of the really hyper growth phase yeah. for Deliveroo when they were looking for an agency to run their ads because they were going to put significant amount of mm -hmm. budget into it to expand in what I didn't know at the time was going to be like 12 countries, literally three months in the job. Wow. Um, so we went for that pitch literally the next day. Um, the marketing director at the time, uh, George, hit me up on LinkedIn and it was like, hey, look, uh, are you interested in actually joining full-time? I don't think we need the agency, but I think we need you. Yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to join as like their first uh, digital marketer, literally, for the Which first is, channel. It's amazing to think that because yeah. now building a startup, mm. to think that you could get to a Series B without having like it's a... It's crazy. A, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, insane yeah, yeah. that you can get to that level. Yeah. Now it's one of the first hires you've got to make. It's mad because it's what happened again at Depop. Yeah. Like Depop was Series B, contacted me and told me we have no one. <laughs> we're using this agency. We don't think we're doing it very well. Yeah. There's no one internally that does digital marketing. Yeah. We don't believe in it. Oh, that also what they wow, told me. We don't okay. believe in it, but if you can come and like, are you interested? 
So is this the sign of a truly great viral product where they can I think get... so, I think so. Yeah. And that, I think that's what both times... Well, I think the first time we delivered, I didn't know. I was, yeah. I was still young and learning the, the ropes and understanding acquisition, mm -hmm. retention, and the paid side, the organic side. I think everyone was kind of figuring that at mm -hmm. the time. It mm -hmm. was still the fairly early days of like AV paid acquisition, the you know the pros and cons of doing that now people are a lot more clued up as yeah. to like why not what to do and what not to do at yeah. which stage yeah. you are but back then it was still kind of the wild west you know it's like and it was really a, a lot easier to raise vc money as well to fuel that because this that's what vc wanted like mm -hmm. growth at all costs mm -hmm. it doesn't matter your payback mm -hmm. we want to win a take all type of business so Pro profitability was a dirty word back then exactly and the level <laughs> was the aim was to become like the yeah number one in the world you know minus the us because that was kind of the untouch untouchable but everything else was like we need to be number one um so spend as much as you need to to to, to get there so that was quite that was quite interesting but it, the, yeah two times the second time i did i kind of followed that pattern yeah not, not, at that time i saw the pattern i was yeah. like okay they've been running for five six years mm -hmm. pretty much all organic and like mm -hmm. really grassroots local events sellers like sellers markets mm -hmm. and like and they've never done any ads and I'm like, wow. It's crazy. And they already have 6 million users. Yeah, it's amazing. So they didn't know that. But when they pitched me, I was like, this is going to be, for me, it's going to be an easy gig. Like, it's, it's got, I know it's going to work. Like, they don't know, but I think I know it's going to yeah. work. And it worked. Um, and then that's, that, yeah, that's, 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 that's where that, I kind of took the, the ship. I remember one of our competitors, a company called Sports Lobster, yeah. they had paid Ronaldo a couple million to basically do a testimonial on the App Store, um, like a review description of the App Store, did nothing. Really? They did nothing. The thing about it is, is that it did nothing at that time because like it wasn't the same. So yeah, you know, it's just so interesting to see how it's evolved. Yeah, it's evolved completely. Because I think now I, um, you could see how you would drive value. So like if that was me, and now I'll be like, well, if you pay Ronaldo, what you would want to do is you like use that content in all your ads, mm -hmm. use it as social proof and essentially use that million to essentially make you net savings in the future. Yeah. Because if you say you worked Ronaldo, no matter what, you've got that credibility, you know, yeah. um, he may not always drive the conversions, you know. Um, that was I don't it. Know, I don't know. But no, but that, that's that's that that's I think you know a perfect example of it is you know if you pay uh, an influencer to do something and you don't know what you're doing with that content and you can't be smart with how you amplify that you can't be smart with how you distribute it you can waste a lot of money right yeah. so why you've got to be smart and have the right strategy. Yeah, and the thing is what I realized um I, over the years and just when like when we were first starting it's like. If people got burnt by influencers, they were they were embarrassed to say that they had been burnt. So like yeah. you'd see like CMOs or like big companies, and they were like, "Yeah, we paid this creator like X amount and got nothing from it." But they'd be whispering it, like, and yeah. then when they're speaking to like the next agency or anything, they'll be like, "Yeah, well, it hasn't worked for us in the past. It doesn't work." But really and truly, it's like they weren't admitting to themselves that um, they didn't know the strategy, or it was just a thing that. People, I think their ego, like what happens is a lot in like advertising, what I notice is like everybody has an ego to know that they're right. But at the same time, like um, it's there's so much to learn. It's not even just about make money. It's about derive value. Mm -hmm. Because like you see it with like HubSpot in terms of like HubSpot is like a SaaS business and it's actually become 
becoming a media company and it's got its media arm. Wow, I which, didn't know that. So like they're acquiring podcasts, they're acquiring different. Really? I yeah. No so they've built out their, um, it's like HubSpot Media Network, I think wow. it's called. And then with that, they're essentially through content, they're te- um, helping the audience, te- they're teaching the audience on how to build their business, you know? So I think what's, what the value of like Web3 and crypto is, is that there is going to be more marketplaces of um, uh, that will allow people to trade value, you know? So um, the value, and obviously the archaic way is that that's through currency, mm-hmm. um, through like, this is my currency, but then the, the switch is that currency is going to be in different formats, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that's the exchange of value. And that's, I personally think that we're light years away from that. And yeah, and, but that is what it would eventually compound to. I, I personally believe. I, I I totally agree. I think it has to get there, and I think yeah. um, obviously things like FTX this week have, have <laughs> not not done huge favors. I don't know if you. I was deep into Solana. I've, yeah, yeah. I've taken a bloodbath. I don't know. I, I like so FTX had stake in yeah. Yeah. So they had like a nice like stake in um function. So they 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 literally they taken my Ethereum. Yeah. yeah. But um. Like it happens, isn't it? Like I think it's the age old thing on crypto anyway. You're not meant to leave like on money on like your your currency on not exchange your wallet, anyway. Not your coins, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. So it's like um for me, I'm like, well, I kind of knew, but at the end of the day, it's like um that that's gonna happen. I can't let it affect me. Personally, think sometimes I I like I actually say to myself, like, am I like I I feel like I need to be more, like a more bad person to be successful. You know, and that's the fight that you kind of have to have because it's it's it's. I don't think enough people talk about yeah. it in terms of like. There's times when you actually have to be very Machiavellian. You have to be very like, look, this is the way, or you gotta go. Hundred like, percent. Like, and you have to be comfortable with that. And I think a lot of the people who have been super super successful, there's gonna be a story about like, um, yeah, this guy done me over this that. So I think it's about coming to terms of like how um do you do it mm-hmm. but how much do you care about other people's opinion because mm-hmm. the further along you go like even doing this podcast now you may get an odd off comment or you know what i mean and you're probably looking at reviews seeing that stuff but um you have to get comfortable with people not not feeling your vibe all the time 100%. you know and that's 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 what it is the bigger you want to go in life yeah um you have to be comfortable with um negative opinions and yeah. and 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 people saying stuff that you don't agree with and be embarrassment, you know? Yeah. Um, and that comes within the organization as well. Just yeah. like you have to get comfortable soon with like being like, yeah, this is zero tolerance. And yeah. Stuff. And like I'm turning a knob and twisting a knob, but it's, it's a journey. It's a progress and I just, it's a process. And I just don't think that a lo- it's spoken about enough, you know? I agree. So, I totally agree. And the thing is, yeah, I spent too much of my life as a people pleaser. And then yeah. you realize no matter what you do, you can't please everyone. Oh, you can't. What's your experience as a woman in tech been? And how have you think seen things change over the last five, six years? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's quite a difficult one to answer because I feel like over over the time that I have been a woman in tech, my own abilities have also been advancing. You know, I started off I started off really young. I think I was 22, 23, uh, I think 23 when we first met. And that isn't really of any age, you know, to have your foot 
on the ground in the community, you know, like flying the flag for women in tech. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wasn't able to do that back then because I didn't feel I had the right network. I didn't have the right backing. And I feel like you need to grow that over time and align yourself, I think, with the right people to Mm -hmm. get yourself there. Um, And alongside that, you know, I think Connected has been a really great driver for me personally because I've been given the opportunity to actually have a voice Mm -hmm. within the startup ecosystem. Obviously, we work within the startup ecosystem solely for the, you know, the early stage. So I think that has been a huge driver in me actually being able to take that step up and say, I am a woman in tech. I have experienced some things that I, I hope other people don't experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, it's a matter of making sure that everybody um, is aware of the issues. I, do, I feel like, you know, we didn't necessarily talk about issues as much as we do in the past. Same with mental health. You couldn't say the words mental health 10 years ago. Mm. Now you're encouraged to do so. Um, and so I think there has been a transition since maybe, you know, five, five, six years ago when I started out um, to what it is now. But within that time, I myself have already also transitioned. Mm. And I think, you know, if there was some advice that I could give other women in tech coming through, it would be to not, not take things personally and that things will probably happen um and you just have to brush yourself off while we're going through this really difficult change Mm. because we can talk about stuff we can be the person flying the flag but we're not stupid we are still living in a man's world where we aren't equal um and that is seen in in many many communities many many networks um you know i I think that's really a valid point to say Mm. um and so while we are in that transition, while we are changing, we can be the thought leaders and we can be the people making that change. But while we're not there 100%, there will be situations that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's not a nice situation for anybody. But if you're in it, don't take it personally. Brush yourself off and realize that times are changing. Conversations can be had now that we never used to be able to have and just put your foot on the pedal and power through and we will make it through together. Mm. And how important are support networks um, for, for that? Yeah, incredibly important. Um, But I think it starts with education because Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we've got young women coming through throughout school and there was never really a clear path, I think, for me personally. And I think that was due to education of not knowing what the paths could be for somebody Mm -hmm. like myself. Um, And so I think we need to start early. We need to make sure that people throughout school and women throughout school are aware of the paths that they can take and how, you know, we can break down gender stereotypes and we can give them as much as a platform as their male counterparts. Um, and then when they're coming through to the support networks, I think that's irreplaceable. Mm. Um, surrounding yourself by like-minded people and people who experience the same things as you is you can't replace that as, you know, as an attribute that you need to, you know, t- to be the launch pad to push yourself off. Mm, no, that's, that's uh, amazing answer and, and really valuable advice. Um, and it's interesting because knowing, knowing your journey, obviously, you know, starting out in tech almost uh, accidentally mm. in many ways, you know, or ending up seeing an amazing opportunity in an area that you were really passionate about, but then just discovering the world of startups yeah. and going straight to basically Completely. running a startup, right? Yeah completely accidental i missed the deadline for my phd while i was in sri lanka (laughs) that's how accidental it was i yeah i'd come down bright-eyed bushy-tailed from Mm -hmm. uni went to london as you know a lot of people do i didn't have a job i didn't know what i was doing i was waitressing at the time um and came across an internship at a mental health tech startup took the job because i was going away for three months as you said to sri lanka to work in mental health uh institutions and then didn't realize obviously wasn't very 
uh, organized back then. Um, not not too good for my job, um, but missed the deadline for my PhD in psychology, which is my educational background, which is what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and realized I had to wait another year to reapply. Obviously, it's once once a year entry. So continued at the job um, in the mental health tech startup and realized that if I actually want to help people and be part of a change, technology is the way to do that. So really just never left from there. And obviously that's where you and I met. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, starting off quite young, I felt like I wanted to get a little bit of a different experience for operations. Operations is so varied depending on what business it is and obviously moved over to Nutrifix and then connected from there. What does social capital mean for those who don't so, know? Social, so I'm a big believer in this continuum of having social capital, which helps you create economic capital, which eventually becomes political capital. And it goes around the circle. So social capital is who you are really, where you grew up, what postcode you grew up in, what your parents did, how much money they earned. Um, did your parents inherit a house from their, their parents and did their parents inherit it from their parents, their money that's come down the, the kind of the, the chain over, over the years? And you know, it's what if ethnicity your parents, mm. what's your socioeconomic background? It's these things that if, if it's kind of there, and there's different facets to it, but you have this kind of foundation almost, Life's a lot easier. You've got a springboard. You've got people to talk to. You've got access to that first couple of thousand pounds you want to start your business. Or if you're lucky, that first, you know, there's tens of thousands of pounds. Uh, the, the amounts of friends and families around I hear of, which are close to a million, it's like, okay, you, know, well, you I mean, can tell it's a very different friend yeah, and family around, right? That's economic capital. <laughs> it's not social capital. So it makes a difference. So, you know, if, if you come from a particular background, you don't realise it. They call it privilege, whatever you want to call it, which is what it is really. But if you don't, you know, trying to get going, trying to do these things and take risk is very hard. So I always say that ambition is evenly distributed. It's actually not evenly distributed. If you look at ethnic minorities, people who are neurodiverse, they're probably more indexed more to those people who start businesses because they hit ceilings or don't think they can have a career or they struggle to get into the jobs they want to do, so they start a business. So if ambition is evenly distributed, why isn't the top of society like the same? Why is it that only one black woman founder raised uh, over a million pounds in VC in between the last 10 years up to 2019, whatever the stats are? So I was on the board of British Business Bank, did a lot of research about this. So you've got, to, you've got to connect ambition with opportunity. And going back to social capital, the key ingredients are access to capital, mm-hmm. networks, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and sort of guidance, really. And that can kind of come from networks. Um, so if you have those three things, you're more likely to go into business. Your risk appetite might be the same, but your ability to go and take on risk mm. um, by actually executing, because you know, ideas are cheap, um, is massively dependent on your social capital. And then when you make money, that's economic capital. When you start a business, it's, everyone's they're absolutely determined, but they think this is gonna be it. The first one is the one that's gonna make them. That's not usually the case. You might make some money, you might not, you might lose your shirt, you might go out of business, you might lose shareholders' money, and you know, they came on the journey with you. And you know, you've gotta understand that, they should understand that risk. Um, but then you will learn, and serial entrepreneurs are serial entrepreneurs because, not because they're any particularly better at understanding how to conceptualize something and, and go to market with it. What they're good at is avoiding all the potholes and mistakes yeah. that we all made on the way. So they're, they're executing, they're slicker, there's less friction to get to where they want to be. It still might not work out, but there's less risk. 
I worked with some, I won some tenders for very large companies, mm -hmm. telcos actually. Um, spent two years working on it in a startup business, mm -hmm. won the tenders. And I never got them to, there's always big numbers, raise money on the back of it. And they never, I never got them to pin down and say, okay, if we do all this, if I, if I industrialize my business for you and raise the money to do it, I need some revenue certainty. And I never ever asked for that. And they never got to market and that business didn't really work out too well. So what you should have done is stand up to very large suppliers or customers and say, look, we're a small business. You need to protect us if we are going to serve you. And if you can't do that, walk away. I'm of the fundamental knowing now that pain is an extraordinary driver, way more powerful than pleasure. I had a coach once who got me to tickle my arm and then he said, feel that. And then he got me to pinch myself and I pinched. And it was like, well, you know, you get that like, and it's like pain focuses the mind and there's nothing wrong with that. And in my, you know, my, my, with my private clients, a lot of them have, they're high performing men. They're struggling. They are suicidal. Some of them depressed, anxious, addicted, and actually they're all driven by pain. Right, it's the pain of failure. Actually, is one of the great. I mean, most people think that they love success, but most people just hate failure. The idea that they're going to fail—it's actually more of a driver. You know, we we're more driven that. And actually, if we just turn the light on and go, well, what is really driving you? And and usually it's a it's pain. It's and and that's okay. You never try and change it. Just become aware of it, mm. and then you're just bringing awareness to an unconscious driver, which it, it makes life there's more whole and completeness to it. And a lot of people who are I've seen a lot of people become aware and they start a business and then they might move into something more philanthropic and they or they broaden their awareness, they become more aware of their team because they become more aware of themselves. But I would say not many people who are driven come from a light place. And then your pain sort of takes on, it's not so much pain, it's like an um, inspiration. Mm. You can transmute your pain into motivation. And, you know, you, you yourself, you're an incredibly driven very um, aware man because you've lost people mm. you know and you and you've had your own struggles and you you are someone who's transmuting your pain into purpose so it's something like that it's like most people don't realize they're in pain so become aware that there's pain you know and I certainly in men you know I would say that men are really unaware of their pain mm -hmm. and then if you're not aware of your pain you're going to find really crazy ways of escaping it in the form of addictions yeah and if you can't find anything that will help you escape your pain through the form of addiction, you'll go one step further, which will be, you know, to suicide, which is a massive problem. Mm -hmm. But if you can become aware of your pain and you have a few tools and you, maybe you've got a group of people that you trust and a therapist who can help you just slowly feel that pain, then it begins the process of, of, of transmuting it into, into a form of purpose. And it's as, as, as dense as that pain is, is as how powerful the inspiration is. And in northern Tibet and in the Buddhist the, the really far Tibetan Buddhist stuff, they love, they revere the peacock. You'll love this. They revere the peacock. And the, they revere the peacock because in Vajrayana Buddhism, which is the transmutation of sort of, so I think like lead to gold or mm -hmm. pain to inspiration or love, they revere the peacock because the peacock only eats the poisonous berries and it makes its plumage. Wow. And that's said to be like the deepest philosophy for life. Wow. It only eats the poisonous berries. And it makes its beautiful plumage. Wow, that's amazing. That's uh, I've never heard that before. Is is that actually true? Is that, yeah. Is that, wow. Yeah. They they revere the peacock. Wow. So it's the symbol of transmutation. It's like, so you know, we've gone deep quite quick here, but it's yeah. like you know, like we're 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 all in pain. Yeah. We're all in pain. Everybody's yeah. in pain. Everybody's running away from something. When you started demystifying VC, 
Did you see risk in that with the way that your LPs yeah. would see you, other yeah, VCs yeah, yeah. would see you? It's it's a big thing. As soon as you are open, because venture is all about secrets. Yeah. So as soon as you're open, which I've actively chosen to do, um, A, people judge you. Mm. And you get judged for doing podcasts, right? I mean, I want to be out there and sharing things and people might think I'm an asshole or a dickhead, that's fine. I, I try not to be, but um, I, I can't always say that I'm not. Um, but I think the, so I made a conscious choice much to sometimes my business partner's <laughs> irritation because he's not, he's the opposite of me, which yeah. is why we work so well together, to share, to ex explain, having spent 20 plus years on that side of the desk and this side for four, I had my eyes opened by what I thought venture was and what it actually is. Mm. So I'm on a mission, sounds cheeseball, but just to every, like the shitty conversations I had this morning that I was sharing, mm -hmm. re two really difficult conversations. One about putting a term sheet, which I've done a very small handful of times. It's horrific. Mm. When you've worked with a family team, you have to pull a term sheet. It's the most, it's, it's just- It's the worst part of the job. Oh my God, my heart's, part of the reason that I'm rabbit holing and, and I can't focus is because my heart is still racing that I feel it's just awful. And then with a chap that I've been working with for a long time, and I basically told him he wasn't doing a good enough job and he unleashed on me. So, but I'm gonna share those stories. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's really important to share all of the backstory of how venture is built, how founders should either raise or not raise if they're not venture backable, how they should think about that, the processes that go on behind the scenes, the egomania that goes mm. on behind the scenes. So I think that I think our world, the startup ecosystem world, will be better because of it. Absolutely. That's the intent. How that comes across doesn't always work and doesn't always land. Fine, you practice and you practice podcasts and writing mm -hmm. and narrating and we get better over mm -hmm. time. You're not gonna wake up and be Ernest Hemingway, right? You're gonna, it's gonna take some time. Um, but it's true, I mean, a lot of the, lot of the companies that I see, I say to them, don't, don't mm. take money from me. Don't, do not raise, yeah. do not take money from me and do not raise. But then I'll say, but th consider this instead and we'll put a structure together that might be a little bit of debt or yeah. this angel or this structure or this yeah. accelerator and think about it in this way. I'm not always right, but venture is certainly not right for everybody. Yeah. One thing I want to go back to sure. in terms of, of risk and LPs rather than just in the, the VC community, you're uh, outspoken on LinkedIn. You mm -hmm. know, you're not afraid to say what you're thinking. Ever worried about the risk that has with LPs? Yeah, or, you, but, you, and, ha and have you seen that impact at all? I don't know is the mm. short answer. Yeah, I'm being judged. Mm. Um, it's an active choice. Um, I believe in standing for something. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you stand for nothing. And I'm hopefully turning on as many people as I'm turning off. Yeah. Well, I'd like to be doing more of this, but yeah. I know that there are, I know that there are uh, LPs that will not like me or my style. They will love my business partner who's the complete opposite to me, mm -hmm. which is why we work so well and why You know who so to wheel out depending on the- So yeah, so if it's more of a heart thing, I get wheeled out. If it's more of a cerebral head data conversation, yeah. Mads gets wheeled out. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite that binary, but yeah. Sure. I think everyone buys with their heart, but you need the head to back it up. So Absolutely. we kind of go, do I like this? Do I like this room? Do I like this house? Do I want to buy this car? Do I want to invest in this founder? That's a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. That's a heart and gut, right? But you need the data then go, is there a market? Well, uh, that's justification, that's right? It's, yeah, it is. That's it, how, it is. I mean, that's how I it see it. It's like, I like this person. I want to believe in this person. Just mm. tell me the numbers make sense. I can justify it to myself. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm a very emotional person. That's not necessarily... I angels are. I, yeah. I, 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 I am as a VC, and that doesn't always serve me well. In fact, it doesn't serve me well at all. <laughs> but I, I can't, you know, I'm 50 years old, I can't change that. Yeah. But the risk piece, I, I do know that um, I sometimes piss people off. Mm -hmm. 
and I am being judged for the for the opinions that I have because it our industry, like I was saying, is all about secrets. It's all about you know that proprietary deal flow, yeah. understanding this in a, in a very secretive, and that's not about sharing. And I want to share those things, mm -hmm. um, but like I say, I, I, the world there's what I want and my fund will still be successful and we have to show a new way we can't just do these we can't venture capital cannot behave like mm. it's behaved for the last 12 years mm. it can't be I won't I won't have it I can't mm. be part of that we're building the best way to find a job in tech and one of the, the opportunities we saw with Otto was let's go build a job product that's candidate first that really puts the job seeker at the heart of what we're building. Um, some products would just say this is being user-centric, but I think in the space we were building in, a lot of entrepreneurs had built for the company side, um, all about filling a vacancy. And so given that, I felt quite strongly that this had to be a consumer brand, and it couldn't just be your boring um, corporate blue, although it's not just all about visuals, LinkedIn indeed. Um, so from a very early moment, we said, let's go strong on brand. Um, because we think this is going to be a big differentiator for us, both in terms of attracting job seekers, then also telling the companies this is what we stand for and why we're different, because we were never going to be as big as, as LinkedIn and um, indeed early on. We, we aren't. There's so many more job seekers there, but the people we do have stand for something. Uh, we call them the all-ins, the people who really mm -hmm. care about their career, the people who want something more, who are willing to give more to get more type of thing. Um, so uh, it was, I think, about six months into our journey after having pre-seed funding that I pulled the trigger on, let's go work with one of the best branding agencies in London who'd done some amazing work with clients and spend 10 to 15% of our cash, which our investors were saying, that's a lot of money. Like our seed stage businesses are spending this much. Mm -hmm. um, but I had the conviction along with Theo and Zav that it would really make a difference and that it would set us on a really strong path to get customers, get candidates, get fundraising. And uh, we worked with a great uh, branding agency called Ragged Edge. They really helped us try and peel away what are we trying to do here? Mm. How can we be different? What makes us different, not just better? Um, and then how do we make that into an incredible visual identity? Um, and Yellow was one of the things that as soon as they put that idea in front of us, we loved because yeah. it just felt so different. Mm. Um, and a few of the previous ideas weren't as exciting. When we saw this one, we were like, this is exciting. So was that it? You saw it and you're like, that's the one. Absolutely. And it's, it's the first time I've done a brand project like this before where you're really trying to create something from scratch and you just know when something doesn't quite feel right. I was like, this, oh, this feels more like a sports brand or this mm. feels more like an education product. It was like, this feels different. This feels bold. This feels distinctive. Um, and so ever since then, we've just been building on that, that, that ability and that desire to be different. Um, and none of us are marketers at the three founders. I think it's been a little bit of a, uh, an entrepreneurial journey to define what different looks like in the space, to mm -hmm. learn what it takes to build a very different brand. Um, I've done a lot of reading. I've spoken to a lot of chief marketing officers in my time, um, either B2B businesses, because I think you learn a lot from that side and yes. then also consumer products. And also marketplaces, because with marketplaces, you have to think quite deeply. Um, and really, the uh, kind of outdoor advertising and the above-the-line advertising that we do is twofold. One is um, job-seeking has a moment in time which is really, really um, buzzy. Mm -hmm. So it's January, February time where people say, new year, new me, new job. There's a lot of psychology that's around why this happens. Mm. And so ad advertising outdoor is really good in that moment because you're reaching a lot of people with a lightning bolt moment that really says we're here to play um and so that was part of why we did it but the other part of why we've done outdoor advertising is we think it's a really strong way of cutting through in a business that's quite hard to cut through there are a lot of job products linkedin is on your phone 
and most people use it despite mm. the fact that it's not a great product and so what are the ways that you can really stand out as a product that means something that has something to say and our advertising is probably punched above its weight and um, we've put messages out into the world which are quite bold um, about salary transparency about um, issues at the workplace and those types of things and those things get noticed and those things build probably more loyalty than um, a simple ad on, on an Instagram um, account we'd still do that it's great for mm -hmm. gaining acquisition but we really did like the, uh, the above the line and, and outdoor advertising to um, tell our story the key word you use there is transparency and one of the things that I love about uh, sorry, that I love from uh, what I've seen of you online is how much transparency you have in terms of building in public, whether it was the, the nine day um, fortnight and, and all the other topics that you speak very, very candidly on. How have you seen businesses handle that transparency when things aren't going as well? And because, you know, I've seen a lot of founders who are very good at building in public on the way up, slightly more difficult when, when things are a bit rocky. What, what's your experience being with that? So I don't think I've taken the kind of default I'm going to just monthly update build and public. Um, I know some founders do that. And when you committed to that, then it feels very weird when they disappear because presumably that's a hard moment. Um, my, my building in public has been very deliberate because we as a company, Otter, want to encourage other companies to do great things to help them hire great people. And so, for example, really shouting from the rooftops about the nine day fortnight is me trying to play a part in changing the ecosystem um, and helping other companies see that it's possible. And this is why we've done it. Uh, and when I made my first post on it, I had so many people say, how do I how do I make this happen in my business? Which was really exciting. Um, but I think in terms of uh, the moments of negativity and, and what you do in, in, in those those spaces, um, it is kind of stick to your same tune of being transparent and sharing and acknowledging that businesses are there to go up and there to go down. Um, and I think one of the things that we felt very clearly on when we started a business, my, my co-founders, it's only a small probability that succeed. And being really real with that as a reality, I think is um, valuable because when you do get to a moment that's not so good, I think it then feels more normal to talk about it not being so good mm. because um, uh, there's only very few companies that always grow, that always keep going up and to the right. Um, and it would be uh, very, very rare to be one of those. And so it's the reality that you're, you're not in some moments. And I think that makes it feel a little bit normal and a little less scary. Mm. Um, the thing I don't love about this building in public culture right now is where it feels like everything has to be told. Everything has to be a story. The negative moments, the positive moments. I think it's, for me, still about storytelling. And so internally, when I talk about transparency, we don't have the 100% um, transparency that I think some of the businesses in London have tried to shout about, which is everything is public, emails are public. You know, we default to public because I'm still very conscious that transparency is sometimes damaging mm -hmm. sometimes you have to withdraw information to tell them later sometimes you have to sequence things smartly sometimes you have to stage things um and i think it's our role as entrepreneurs to do that work and sometimes to bottle things in for a little while to then tell people um and so i think that's somewhat similar with building in public um and that's why i've not taken the decision to literally tell the world everything we do um i like to tell things that we've selected because mm -hmm. that's part of my my storytelling and growing a tech business is incredibly difficult and it takes a completely different skill set. So probably from speaking to over 2,000 founders, I would say don't launch your tech business unless you actually have an idea of what you're doing. And mm. no one really does. Yes. No one does. You learn as you go, but you have some idea of what you're doing. So when you get into the world of tech, you get into the world of valuations, things start to get very different from any other industry. And I think you need to fully understand that industry if you do want to enter it and you do want to have a 
tech company grow and scale, it's a different skill set. It's a different mindset and a different skill set. Yeah, 100%. And it's one of the things that we're so passionate about with Connected, which is trying to educate the community around the realities of what that means. Because the thing is, uh, and, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about businesses which are striving to be capital-backed, investor-backed, whether that's venture capital, whether that's angel investors. And therefore, if you're doing that, you're creating an organization of two halves. You're creating an internal organization, which is your team members, your customers, all the things which are business-facing, let's say. And then you have the external organization, which is your investors, your stakeholders, your board of directors, and you as the CEO, as the founder, you know, you're you're the sandwich of this oh sorry, you're the the filling in this organizational sandwich, right? And building a great internal business, customer, product, all those things there, does not necessarily mean you have the skill set or the understanding on how to manage your external organization, managing your shareholders, what's important to them, how are you going to be able to present yourself professionally so that they trust you enough in the first place to invest, that they continue to trust you enough to reinvest and be on your side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just as you said, you know, th- those skills are not intuitive. You know, we don't learn those skills in school. Um, even Absolutely people not. who even people who I know who've done courses in entrepreneurialism, etc., they're not understanding stakeholder, shareholder management in the same no. way. And I think I've heard you say this before. When when it does come to growing and scaling that business, isn't there's something I'll touch on a bit, touch upon in a moment? Until you get to that point of I need to make this a success, mm-hmm. things are going to be difficult. But just to add something else to that is the differences between a scalable, venture backable business and a lifestyle business huge problem that I probably see on a on a day-to-day basis is people wanting to go and get venture capital for a lifestyle business. Mm-hmm. Something that might turn over a couple of hundred grand a year, pay all of its bills, make a 50 grand profit and you'll take a dividend and it's a lifestyle business. But they want venture capital yeah, yeah, because yeah. they need to hire a head of marketing. They need to hire a, hire a salesperson and pay themselves a salary. That's not venture backable as, yeah. as you'll be able to say over and over again, as a founder, you need to be able to sell. Yes. And again, I've been on so many calls with so many founders who are explaining their business to me. And I must be honest, I'm falling asleep. Yeah. They've they've lost me after 10, 15 seconds. It's boring. There's no enthusiasm. And one of the big things when you're thrown into a startup at the deep end is you learn to sell. Mm. You learn the right signals. You learn how to talk to people, how to communicate, how to sell. That's a huge skill that you miss out on if you jump straight into consulting mm-hmm. or you jump into an analyst role and you don't know how to sell because accountants sell, yes. lawyers sell, Absolutely. founders sell. If you can't sell, you can't get very far. If you can at an early stage, and, and this is something I, I say on a daily basis, but if you are pre-revenue, you know you haven't made a sale, you haven't even got a wait list yet, but if you can convince really top talent to come on board at an early stage, demonstrates that you will take the business to the right place because it's the team and the people that drive it forward. When I joined Connected, there's six of us. I can name names, but you know who's around the table. Those people, I believed, had the right mindset, drive, ambition, skill sets, contacts to drive the business forward. Mm. The product back then is not the product now. And for most early stage companies, the product, your MVP that you launch, that is not going to look anything like your product in two years' time. It's all about the people. Who's there? Who's going to drive it forward? That's what's important. What would your advice be for all the early stage companies that you've spoken to 
what are the themes that you see running consistently through the ones who do then go to raise that capital uh, and who do go on to grow businesses which become interesting? Yeah, it's a shame the answer that I'm going to give because I'm not going to give an answer that's, you know, from a book. But if I'm completely honest, contacts. Mm. You know, for a lot of the businesses that I do see at an early stage doing really well, they do have strong contacts and that's difficult. They do have good backgrounds. Again, difficult. They often have very experienced advisors and teams around them that have done well. So build a team mm. because contacts are really, contacts will open the door for you. Now, not everybody has access to those contacts, hence why networking sites exist. But contacts are how you're really going to drive things forward at an early stage mm -hmm. and ask for advice, get advice. None of us know everything, but I would say contacts if I have to give an actual number one answer because names, doors, opportunities, they do get you to a certain extent. And then it's your job as a founder to push things on and make the right decisions. Mm. But those doors do need opening sometimes. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good, honest answer. You know, um, absolutely. No one can ever put you through the door, but they can open it. Mm. Um, I think it's a really, really good, honest answer. And I think there are also ways to um, open doors yourself. Yeah, of course. But it's it just takes longer. Yeah, and it if, takes if, longer. And look, if someone's not opening those doors for you, knock on the door yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's all you can do. It's all you can do. And I think uh, some of the things you've mentioned there, building your wait lists, getting proof of concepts, getting letters of intent, those are the sorts of things mm. which will open the doors. And th there's another thing I heard you say, it probably is going back two years ago, so I don't know if you have said it since in the last two <laughs> Let's years. Let's find out. Um, but, you know, when you are building a business at an early stage, do not be scared to burn customers. Mm. See if you can finish off the sentence. No, go uh, as in. Fine. Oh yeah. Okay. Why, sh why should you not be afraid to burn customers? Because at early if stage? you if if you're afraid to burn your small amount of early customers, there aren't enough customers in the market. Exactly, you're not in a big yeah. enough market. You're so I, I market. you know can remember you saying that a couple of years ago. Yeah. If you're scared to burn people at an early stage, you're not in a big enough market. Yeah, and and that's it. Because realistically, your earliest customers will not be getting the full experience. Absolutely, you know, they oh, won't. Of course not. And that's why you sell it at such a discount. You know, yeah, you're not saying charge them what you're going to charge them after after 10 years when you've got your entire stack built mm. and everything is working perfectly. That's why early adopter pricing is is, yeah. is so important. And if you go around things the other way and you put your prices sky high right at the start, oh my God, you're going to get some bad feedback and some yeah. bad press. But if someone pays 50 quid for a pretty decent product, yeah. they're not going to be phoning you up every day and complaining. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.